can turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4 as we finish up the book this morning. So my brother loves British movies. He actually loves all things British. So a few years ago, he convinced my dad and I to sit down with him and and watch a British spy movie about a a British spy, an MI5, who was framed for a crime he did not commit. It was a pretty complicated plot. I had a hard time following it, but I I could catch the gist of it. Things just kept going from bad to worse in this guy's life. And it built up to this crescendo at the end, this this final epic battle where you think that the good guy is finally going to be exonerated and the bad guy is going to be exposed. And, And at the very last moment, the bad guy gets away, the good guy accidentally kills his friend, and then with no hope lost, shoots himself, and the credits roll. Um, I'll confess, I was not happy about this movie. I was not happy with my brother for wasting two hours of my life. The bad guy getting away and the good guy committing suicide might fly in England, but not in my house. That's, that's not what I want for my entertainment. I want my entertainment to entertain me, not depress me. In my humble opinion, a movie doesn't have to have a happy ending, but it can't end like that with no resolution and, and just utter despair. That's why I didn't watch Titanic some years ago. Because you know what's going to happen, right? You you know the boat's going to sink and Leo's going to die. And why would I want to watch that? Like most Americans, I want my movies to end happily. I like a happy ending. That's what I expect from a good story. And so here we are at the end of the book of Jonah. Now, how would we expect the book of Jonah to end? Well, let's review from last week. Okay, chapter three we studied last week. What happened in chapter three? Well, at the beginning of the chapter, God gave grace to his prophet Jonah. He gave Jonah a second chance to go and and preach to the Ninevites, and Jonah stepped up. He was heroic. He was brave. He preached this message to the Ninevites, and the Ninevites believed. They heard it. They repented. And as a result, God spared them. It was the greatest one-day revival you'll find anywhere in Scripture, an incredible moment of, of triumph for God and for God's prophet. So that's how chapter three ends. So how would you expect the book to end now as we get into chapter four? Well, if Hollywood would have written the book of Jonah, then in chapter four, uh, Jonah would have met a nice girl, right? An an attractive girl, witty, a little out of his league, because remember, Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so he's probably smelling kind of funky at this point. He thinks he'll never know true love, but lo and behold, there's this girl who's just head over heels in love with him. She just so admires his bravery, so in chapter four, she confesses her love for him, and they embrace and share a, a princess bride kind of kiss, and then they hop on a horse and ride off into the sunset as happily ever after. Grace is the screen. Right, that's, that's how I wish Jonah ended. That would be a nice ending to the book of Jonah. But this isn't a Hollywood story. This is the Bible. It's real life. And real life often ends without a happily ever after. So look with me, Jonah chapter 4. Let's see how Jonah's story ends. Read the first three verses with me. But it greatly displeased Jonah. Then he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me for death is better to me than life. Jonah doesn't end with happily ever after. Jonah ends with anger. 
shocking anger from Jonah towards God. That's what's recorded in the first three verses. And in English, you kind of miss it. In English, you have a lot of kind of polite words here. In Hebrew, it's much clearer. In verse 1, it actually literally reads in Hebrew, but it was evil to Jonah with great evil, and he burned with anger. Now, in Hebrew, the way you emphasize something is to repeat it. So you have repetition of the word evil, ra. In, in Hebrew, what the author is telling us is that Jonah is at this moment as angry with God as he could possibly be. There is no stronger way to express anger in Hebrew. His anger just burns within him. He is furious with God. So angry, in fact, that verse 3, he wants to die. He wants God to just take his life. He wants to be done with life. He is just so intensely angry. Now, why? Why is Jonah so angry? Bro, this is supposed to be your happily ever after moment. Why are you so furious with God? Well, look again at verse 1. The author tells us it greatly displeased Jonah. It, what is it? Well, you have to look in the context. What came right before chapter four? Look with me at verse 10 of chapter three. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God spared Nineveh, and that infuriates Jonah. Jonah is angry because God gave mercy. He gave grace to Nineveh. Now, why does that make Jonah so angry? A little background here. At this point in world history, Nineveh was part of the Assyrian kingdom. And the Assyrians and the Israelites didn't get along well together. At this point, when Jonah was alive, Assyria forced Israel to pay tribute every year. And tribute, think of it as absurdly high taxation levied by one nation on another nation designed to crush that other nation. You want to keep them poor and weak and humiliated and subservient. So every year you show up and take all of their money. And if they say no, you wipe them out. That's what Assyria was doing every year to Israel keeping them humiliated on an ongoing basis. So, of course, Jonah hates the Ninevites. But it's not just this tribute that they have to pay every year. Jonah had heard words from two other prophets, Hosea and Amos, who lived about the same time period. They prophesied that God would use the kingdom of Assyria, that includes Nineveh, to punish Israel for their idolatry. That at some point in the near future, God would send Assyria into Israel to invade and destroy, conquer, and exile. That happened just 30 years after Jonah. Nineveh's repentance didn't actually last very long. It was just one generation that repented. The next generation rose up and picked their weapons back up and aimed for Israel. Jonah knew that was coming. And so his anger is not surprising. This visceral reaction he has against God's mercy to the Ninevites is not surprising. Because the Ninevites were the bad guys. They were the enemies. They were the ancient equivalent of the Nazis. Their hatred directed towards the Jewish people. Jonah couldn't stomach the thought of God's mercy going to Nineveh. It just made him sick. In fact, it made him so sick that he tells us in verse 2, this is why I ran away all the way back in chapter 1. Why did Jonah disobey God? Now we know. We know the rest of the story. Here is why. Look again at verse 2. Jonah says, he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. 
Jonah quotes Exodus 34 in the second half of that verse. Exodus 34, that's God speaking to Moses. God revealing himself to Moses. And God revealed to Moses a lot about himself, about his character. He revealed to Moses that he is a gracious God. What does it mean to be gracious? Well, gracious means that you withhold deserved punishment and instead give undeserved blessing. You give someone something good that they don't deserve. That's grace. Now, chapter three, we we learned that we have a God who loves to give grace. Not just to us, but to all human beings. It thrills the heart of God to give us grace. We have a gracious God. Second, God revealed that he is compassionate. A beautiful word in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's related to the word for a woman's womb. It's a word picture. It is womb love, compassion. God's compassion is equivalent to the love that a woman has for her newborn baby. That's how God feels towards all people, all people on earth, all human beings. God has womb love towards them, compassion towards them. That's how God loves us. He is gracious. He is compassionate. Third thing he revealed to Moses, he is slow to anger. Another beautiful word picture. Literally in Hebrew, it means he has a long nose. Now, now why, why would God say he has a long nose? Because picture, you get angry. Kids do something bad. You get angry. What happens to your face? Well, it starts to turn red, right? At, at your cheeks first, and then the base of your nose. And as your anger builds, the redness descends down your nose until you're completely red. And what God is saying is, Jonah, I've got a really long nose. So it takes me a long time to get fully angry. I am patient in my anger. What a contrast to Jonah. Jonah sees God spare Nineveh and instantly he is burning from head to toe in anger. God is slow to anger. He is patient with us. Fourth thing that God reveals to Moses, he says, I am abounding in loving kindness. The word has said in Hebrew, it means loyal love or faithful love. What God was telling Moses is my love is not temporary. My love is not something that you can lose, something that you can forfeit. My love is permanent. It is eternal. It is unconditional. That's how God loves us, with loyal love, faithful love. Final thing that God told Moses, I relent concerning calamity. That's exactly what God did in chapter 3, verse 10. He relented, he changed his mind about the harm that he wanted to bring Nineveh. When they repented, God was thrilled to relent, to withdraw punishment and extend grace. So Jonah quotes Exodus 34, because Jonah's theology is perfect in this passage. He knows God. He he understands the gracious character of God, but he hates it. He hates that God would give grace to his enemies. That infuriates Jonah. These are the bad guys. It infuriates him. It makes him sick that God would extend him grace. That is why he rebelled against God back in chapter one, because he knew That God sending Jonah to the Ninevites was an act of grace. If all God wanted to do was judge Nineveh, he would have just pushed the smite button on him. And that would have been it. Jonah knew by sending me, you are trying to get them to repent so you can relent. And so Jonah tried to force God's hand. If I don't go and preach, then they will not know that they're wrong. They will not repent and you will have to judge them. That's why Jonah ran away. To force God to punish his enemies. Jonah would rather disobey God than see grace go to his enemies. Why? Because Jonah doesn't want to be a traitor. He wants to be a patriot. He loves his nation more than he loves his God. And so he disobeys God because he can't stomach the thought of grace 
going to his enemies. That's why Jonah ran away. He is absolutely furious with God. His point, if you want to summarize it in your own words, in verses two and three, Jonah is saying to God, God, I disobeyed you because I knew you would mess everything up. That's why I ran away to Tarshish, because I knew you would show them mercy, but you dragged me back. You made me come here in the belly of a fish. I had to preach, and now everything I feared has come true. You've shown mercy to my enemies. You have made me a traitor to my own people. God, you've ruined my life. I wish I were dead. That's what he's saying. It sounds way too polite in the English translation. He's not being polite here. Jonah is furious. He's like a rebellious teenager slamming the door on his parents. That's Jonah's intense, raw, visceral anger towards God. He wants to die. Jonah is saying, God, I would rather be dead than to live in a world run by a God as horrid as you. Jonah is furious. His fists are raised. He is railing against God. These are serious words. These are are fighting words. Now, all of us get angry from time to time. We even get angry at God, but Jonah has gone way beyond the pale, way beyond what's appropriate. He has raised his fist. He is railing against the creator of heaven and earth. And so what does God do? How does God respond to his angry prophet? Well, fortunately for Jonah... God is indeed long of nose. Because what Jonah deserves right now is to get the smite button on himself. Okay, Nineveh got away. You don't. You want death? Okay, here it is, Jonah. Jonah deserves to get his wish granted. But God says, no, I'm not going to give you what you deserve, Jonah. I'm going to give you grace once again. I'm going to give you grace by teaching you. I'm going to show you the folly of your words, the folly of your anger. I'm going to help you to grow. I'm going to help you to see reality as I see it. That's the rest of chapter four. God teaches Jonah a lesson. God reveals truth to Jonah so Jonah can see the world like God does. So let's look at God's patient instruction of his rebellious prophet. It begins with a question. In verse four, the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? That's the key question of the whole chapter. It will be repeated in verse 9. It's the dominant idea here. Jonah, do you have the right to be angry? What God is asking is, Jonah, is, is your anger righteous? Is it appropriate? Which of us is right in this situation, Jonah? Are you right or am I right? If I was right to spare the Ninevites, then your anger is wrong. But if your anger is right, then I was wrong to give the Ninevites mercy. So Jonah, which is it? Are you right or am I right? That's the question of the chapter. Now, God doesn't force an answer at this point. Instead, he's just gonna, he's gonna wait for an answer and spend some time teaching Jonah through an object lesson. God is gonna use creation to open the prophet's eyes to truth. That's verses five through eight. God uses creation as a little object lesson for Jonah. Look with me starting in verse five. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Now in verse five, we get the setting. 
Verse 5, we get the setting. What is happening here is that Jonah is still hoping that God will come to his senses. Jonah still thinks he's right. God, at some point you're going to wake up and you're going to see reality as I see it. And you're going to see that you have to crush the Ninevites. God has already decided to spare the Ninevites. But Jonah walks out of the city to the east to wait and see. Maybe God will come to his senses. But Nineveh is in modern day Mesopotamia. That's modern day Iraq. And in Iraq, it gets really hot. Especially when you're out in the desert, which is where Jonah would be. In the desert to the east of the city, looking down at the city. It would be really hot. Jonah probably preached to Nineveh during the hot season of the Iraqi desert. And so the average high temperature on most days was about 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The dude is just baking in the sun. And so he tries to build a shelter around himself. But imagine the deserts of Iraq. There's not a lot of wood there. Not a lot of stuff to build a shelter. Just some rocks, just some sand. So this shelter is inadequate. It just provides a little bit of shelter, but he's still baking in the sun. And so Jonah is incredibly uncomfortable. And so in grace, God shows up in verse 6. That's verse 6. God gives Jonah grace. What did Jonah deserve from God at this moment? He deserved a swift kick. Instead, God gives him a gift in the form of a little plant. God appoints a plant to grow. Now that that word appoint that you see there in in your Bible is very significant. It appears four times in the book of Jonah. Chapter 2, God appointed a fish. Chapter 4, he appoints a plant and then a worm and then the wind. In each case, a point is talking about God's sovereign control over some part of creation. God is using creation to teach his prophet a lesson. It is ironic That all four of those things, the the fish and the plant and the worm and the wind, all obey God better than his prophet does. Kind of funny, isn't it? They all get the lesson. They all understand. And so God appoints these things to to teach Jonah a lesson. On day number one, he appoints a plant. In Hebrew, it literally reads a, a tiny plant. This is not a tree. This is not a bush. It's a tiny little plant that grows up over his head, just big enough to provide a little spot of shade above him. God causes it to grow supernaturally. And one morning, just boom, a miracle. This plant has grown up. And how does Jonah respond to that plant? Well, it tells us he is exceedingly happy. Actually, in Hebrew, you have repetition again. It says literally, he rejoices with great rejoicing. The point is, he is as happy as he could possibly be about this plant. It's parallel to verse one. He was as angry as he could possibly be with God, but he was as in love with this plant as he could possibly be. Jonah loves this plant. He loves it, but that's actually not not entirely accurate, is it? Because Jonah doesn't love the plant per se. He's not a botanist. He doesn't have some intrinsic interest in plant life. What does Jonah love? He loves the shade. He loves his comfort. The plant comforts him in the sun. That's what he loves. That's why he rejoices with great rejoicing because of the comfort that the plant had provided. And so on day one, God gives Jonah grace. He gives him this gift of comfort. On day number two, God gives him something different. On day number two, God gives Jonah justice. Jonah was in open rebellion against God. He, he did not deserve the gift of the plant, the comfort that the plant provided. And so on day number two, God shows up and gives him justice. God appoints a worm. And that worm causes the, the plant to die. It withers as supernaturally fast as it grew. Just boom, it's gone in one morning. And then God appoints the wind and the sun to beat down on Jonah, to give him what he deserves. Here you go, Jonah. This is what, here's justice for you. I'm going to beat down on you with the wind and the sun. How does Jonah respond to that? 
He cries out, just let me die. He is in pain. He is suffering. And so he rails against God. He is faint and says, just let me die. And so day number one, God gives grace to Jonah and Jonah rejoices. Day number two, God gives justice to Jonah and Jonah wants to die. God is showing Jonah, Jonah, here are are the results. When people get grace, life is wonderful. When people get justice, life is suffering and pain. And now with that object lesson set up, as, as he has now shown Jonah both grace and justice, now God brings a lesson home by returning to the question in verse nine. Look at verse nine. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. So we're, we're back to the question, Jonah, is your anger righteous? Are you right to feel this intense anger towards me? Jonah, which of us is right? If, if it was right what I did to the plant, then your anger is wrong. If your anger is right, then what I did to the plant is wrong. So Jonah, which of us is it? Am I right or are you right? And how does Jonah respond? God lets him respond this time. He invites an answer. And what does Jonah say? Me. I am right and you are wrong. God, you are so horrible. You are so unjust to me that I would prefer to die than to live in a world run by a God as horrible as you. Okay, now let's pause for a moment and think about what Jonah just said. How is Jonah looking in your eyes at this moment? Not real good. Guy's not looking real good. Uh, what, what just happened? He lost a tiny little plant and now he wants to die. Come on, bro, that, that's folly. That's foolishness. You're getting a sunburn and you want to die because of that. Jonah has lost all perspective. God has allowed Jonah to walk into this trap of foolishness. God has allowed Jonah to expose how foolish his heart is. And now with the folly of Jonah exposed, God brings home the lesson. In verses 10 and 11, God teaches his prophet the lesson. Look with me, starting in verse 10. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? What God is doing is arguing from the, the lesser to the greater. Jonah, let's compare, let's contrast what you care about versus what I care about. Verse 10, Jonah, here's what you care about. You care about a tiny plant. It's not even a tree. It's not even a bush. It's a, it's a tiny little plant which you did not create. You did not plant it. You did not cause it to grow. It's not your plant. A tiny little plant that lasted only one day. It came up in the morning. It died in the morning. Now let's compare that to what I care about, Jonah. I care about a great city. Great because it had been the capital of Assyria for centuries. Great because it had a huge population. 120,000 people whom God did create whom God made, whom he fashioned in his own image. And God reminds Jonah, Jonah, it's 120,000 people down there who can't tell the difference between their left hand and their right. Now, that's not literal. You don't have 120,000 people walking around Nineveh like this, trying to figure out which way is left. It's a metaphor for spiritual ignorance. What God is reminding Jonah is, Jonah, they don't have all the advantages that you have had. They don't have all the spiritual things in their life that you have had. They don't have the law. They don't have my word. They don't have the temple. They don't have the prophets. None of them grew up in a godly home. They all grew up in a wicked home with parents who were immoral and violent people. Now that does not excuse their sin. They are still guilty. They know that what they were doing was wrong. 
But the fact that they grew up without all those spiritual advantages moves God's heart to want to show them mercy all the more. God cares deeply about people who grow up in godless homes. He desperately desires to extend mercy to them. But Jonah doesn't. Jonah could care less about their disadvantages in life. He just wants them to die. And so God ends the chapter with one last nail in the coffin of Jonah's argument. Jonah, what about the animals? What's God saying there? He's not equating people and animals. Animals are not as valuable as people. What God is saying is, okay, Jonah, you are right. The Ninevites are guilty. They deserve my wrath. But what about their animals, Jonah? They're not guilty. They're innocent animals, probably hundreds of thousands of animals in the city of Nineveh. Now, Jonah, you you felt that you were right to have compassion on one tiny plant. And yet you deny me the right to have compassion on hundreds of thousands of innocent animals that would be caught up in the fire of my destructive wrath. Jonah, what a fool are you? You've completely been blinded to reality. God just demolishes Jonah's argument, just absolutely destroys it. In this lesson, God points out three errors of thinking that Jonah makes. Three ways in which Jonah's thinking is wrong. Jonah, here are three things that you are doing wrong as you get angry over this situation. Why was Jonah wrong? Number one, because Jonah insisted on mercy for him and justice for others. When Jonah got mercy, when he got grace, how did he respond? Thumbs up, as happy as he could possibly be. When others got mercy, when others got grace, how did he respond? as angry as he could possibly be. Jonah, that's hypocrisy. God wants Jonah to understand, Jonah, you are just as guilty as the Ninevites. Now you haven't done things as bad as they've done, but they haven't had any of the advantages that you had. You're at least as guilty as they are. Yet I show you mercy and you rejoice. I show them mercy and you get angry. Jonah, you're a hypocrite. You want mercy for you, justice for others. Second error that Jonah made. Jonah, you love that which had little value. A tiny plant, bro, seriously. Tiny little plant, grows up in one day, dies the next day. That's what you love? Jonah, you're a fool. You care about that which has no value rather than that which is incredibly value, 120,000 people. Third error that Jonah makes. Jonah, you loved your comfort more than other people's lives. That's the most condemning error. Jonah, you care more about your physical comfort in the midst of this hot desert sun then you care about the lives of 120,000 people. Jonah, that is selfishness. You care only about yourself. That's ugly, Jonah. God points out the errors of Jonah, not to shame him, not to embarrass him. God points out his errors to deliver him. Just think about it. Who is suffering in chapter four? Let's read chapter four. Who is suffering at this moment? Well, not Nineveh. Nineveh repented. So they're getting grace right now. Life is good for Nineveh at this moment. And God, he's not suffering. Jesus told us in the book of Luke, I tell you the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. A party in heaven when one sinner repents, how many just repented? 120,000 in one day. Can you imagine the party that was going on in heaven? Man, it makes our party after we beat Alabama look like nothing. (laughs) There's never been a party in all of human history that can compare to the party going on in heaven in Jonah chapter four. God is thrilled 
because the Ninevites repented and he got to show grace. So God is not suffering. God is overjoyed. The only person suffering in chapter four is Jonah. He's the only one. He's suffering. His anger, his bitterness have robbed him of joy. This is supposed to be his mountaintop experience. You realize the irony right now. The dude just won an incredible victory for the Lord. One of the greatest days in the history of ministry just happened in chapter three. A huge, brave victory. This is supposed to be his party moment, his mountaintop experience, and yet he misses out completely on it. Because he allowed his hatred and bitterness to lock him in a prison of selfishness and rob him of all joy. How often we make that same mistake. Life doesn't go our way. Life gets painful. Life gets hard. And so we give in to anger and hatred and and bitterness and selfishness, thinking that we have a right to that. I have a right to feel angry. I have a right to be bitter about this. What we don't realize is we're just hurting ourselves. You're not hurting the person that you're angry at. Anger, hatred, unforgiveness, bitterness, those are poison pills. They kill you. They destroy you from the inside out. Jonah didn't realize that. He caused incredible suffering and pain in his own life. There is no happy ending to the book of Jonah. And it's not the Ninevites' fault. And it's not God's fault. It's Jonah's fault. He forfeited his happily ever after because he would not let go of hatred. And so now let's step back and let's look at our own lives. How can we avoid the mistakes of Jonah? How can we avoid ruining the end of our lives like he did? Well, three questions that I want you to ask yourself, three things that I want you to consider as you think about Jonah chapter four. First thing, if you want to avoid his mistake, ask yourself, do I desire mercy for everyone? For everyone without exception. For the flagrantly immoral who just rub their immorality in our faces, who want to legislate immorality in our country. Do I desire mercy for them? Do I desire mercy for murderers, for people who've done horrendous things? Do I desire mercy for terrorists, for Al-Qaeda? Do I want God to reach down and spare them and deliver them? Or make it more personal, do I want mercy for someone who's hurt me? Someone who has damaged me, who has caused me pain and suffering. Do I wish mercy upon them rather than wrath? I'll be the first to admit that's not easy. That is incredibly hard. And so I would give you two truths to inspire and motivate you to wish mercy upon even your enemies. Truth number one that we have to keep in our minds is that we are no more righteous than they are. There's not a single righteous person in this room. I hope you know that. And myself included, none of us are righteous. We're all sinners and God doesn't rank sinners. He doesn't rank sin. I don't know if you knew that about God. There is no ladder of sinners. There is no list from bad to better. No, sin is sin. In God's eyes, we are all sinners who deserve his punishment. And yet in grace, God has delivered us. In grace, he has forgiven us and given us eternal life. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. It wasn't our morality that provided it. It was the death of God's own son, Jesus. He died for us and rose from the dead so that God could graciously give us forgiveness as a free gift. So how can we not extend that same grace to others, even our enemies. We are no more righteous than they. How can we not extend them mercy if God has shown us mercy? That's the first thing that Jonah wants us to understand. Let me give you a 
an illustration of what this looks like. Let me, let me give you a second truth to think about. Not only are we sinners like they, not only are we no more righteous than they, the second thing, the second truth that Jonah wants us to remember, or the book of Jonah teaches us, is that when we choose the path of hate rather than the path of mercy, we are the ones who suffer. Not the people we hate, us. It's hatred, unforgiveness, selfishness, bitterness. They're poison pills. They rot us from the inside out. We're the ones who suffer. God doesn't want that for you. He wants you to know freedom. He wants you to know joy. He wants you to know love that is only possible through mercy. The best example I know of this is in the life of a woman named Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom and her family hid Jews during World War II from the Nazis. The Nazis were not happy about that, and so they caught the family, and, and they sent them off to concentration camps. And, and Corey and her sister Betsy ended up in Ravensbrück, where Betsy died a slow and torturous death at the hands of the Nazis. Well, World War II comes to an end. Betsy get, or, uh, Corey gets out. And she begins a ministry, preaching the gospel to people. And in 1947, just two years after the war ended, she comes face to face with one of the guards of Ravensbrook. A guard who, after the war, had heard the gospel and accepted it and believed. And he asked Corey, Corey, will you please forgive me? What do you think she said in her mind? No way. I cannot forgive you. You you are complicit in the death of my sister. And yet she knew, and in all reality, I am just as guilty as this guard. Because God doesn't rank sins. We are all sinners. I have received grace. How can I not offer it to him? And so with her heart still screaming in anger, Corey prayed, God, give me strength. And she mouthed the words to this guard, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. She didn't feel it, but she made herself say it. Then she says a remarkable thing happened. Right after that, in her own words, For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. When you hold on to hate, it makes you a prisoner of bitterness. When you let go of your hatred, when you offer mercy, it sets you free. As Corey herself said, one of my favorite quotes, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover the prisoner was you. It's you. When you offer mercy, you set yourself free. So don't make the mistake that Jonah did. Don't hold on to anger. Don't hold on to hatred. Don't hold on to bitterness. Give them away. Give forgiveness. Give mercy. Choose mercy. It's the first way you avoid Jonah's mistake. Second question I want you to ask yourself. If you want to avoid Jonah's mistake. Do you love that which has lasting value? Jonah did not. What did Jonah love? Tiny little plant. No lasting value. You look at what Jonah loved and it makes you think, man, this guy is ridiculous. What a fool he is. And yet we do exactly the same thing all the time. We choose to fall in love with that which has no lasting value. Things like our our money and our wealth and our possessions and our entertainment. We choose to love these things and care about them more than, than people made in the image of God who lasts for eternity. I'll give you an example. This has been a really convicting sermon for me, not a fun week for me. As I've looked at the example of Jonah, an example, uh, uh, an illustration came to mind from my own life. Um, It frustrates me when my kids ride in my car and get it dirty. And recently, my kids got it very dirty, and I got angry. I was angry that they got my car dirty. 
Now, my kids should be more responsible. They need to grow in responsibility. But the emotion of my anger demonstrates that what I really care about is not the growth of my children's responsibility level. What I really care about is my car. And that's stupid. Because my car, think about it. Is it going to last? No. It's going to break down. Then it's going to rust. And then it's going to end up in a landfill. But my kids, they are eternal They're made in the image of God. They will last forever. I can be just as much a fool as Jonah was when I choose to fall in love with that which doesn't last. And so this week I have been praying that God would break me of my love of insignificant things, that he would break me of my love of stuff. I've been praying, God, help me to be a good steward of the possessions that you've given me, but help me not to love them. Help me to love you and your word and people, things that really matter. Don't make the mistake of Jonah. Don't choose to love that which has no lasting value. Choose to love that which lasts. That's the second lesson we learned from Jonah. Third question I want you to ask yourself as we seek to avoid Jonah's mistake. Do you love others more than your own comfort? Do you love other people more than your own comfort? This is the hardest one. Hardest one of all, because we are born hardwired to love our comfort. That is why your baby screams when it is wet or hungry. Because we want comfort. We love our comfort. We're born hardwired for that. Unfortunately, though, we live in a broken world. A broken world that will often force us to choose between our comfort and the good of other people. And when you're forced in that situation, when it's either your comfort or their good, which will you choose? Yet again, another example from my own life. I did poorly this week. I love my comfort. I love particularly the comfort I get from a good night's sleep. Really do. Love it very much. But my kids were sick this week. And sick toddlers rob you of a good night's sleep. On Wednesday, they woke me up at 3.30, kept me up for a while. And I was not happy about that. And so in sin, I chose to get angry about it. In sin, I chose on Thursday to throw myself a little pity party, which I'm not very proud of today. Um, In sin, I chose on Thursday to be grumpy towards my kids because they robbed me of sleep. And I look at that now and I realize, Blake, what a fool you are. You chose to care more about the comfort you get from sleep than about your kids, your kids whom God loves. What a foolish thing. I'm just like Jonah. We laugh. We, we can't believe how stupid he was to care more about comfort than about 120,000 people, and yet we do it all the time. All the time. So are you willing to sacrifice your comfort for the good of other people? If you want to bring that home and apply that, how do I know if I'm willing to do that? Well, look at the two primary things that you use to provide comfort in your life. Two primary commodities that purchase comfort for you. The first is money. In our culture, money buys comfort. So are you willing to sacrifice your money to meet the needs of other people? Do you give generously to those in need? Do you give generously to missions? What we prayed for earlier today, taking the gospel to the nations. Do you give generously to that? Do you give generously to your church, the ministries going on here at Grace? Or do you hoard your money? You spend it only on on yourself, on, on your comfort. Well, that selfishness is just as ugly as Jonah's selfishness. Do you sacrifice your money? Second commodity that, that we have that, that provides comfort for us is our free time. In our hectic and busy world, there's probably nothing more precious to you than your free time. Can't have comfort without free time. 
And so when someone comes to you and they need you to sacrifice your free time to care for them, how do you respond? Do you make excuses? Do you draw boundaries around your free time? Do you you make yourself unavailable so they just can't ask? Or if they force you to give them free time, do you respond in bitterness and anger like I did towards my kids? Or are you generous with your free time? Do you give it away freely to care for those in need? Don't make the mistake of Jonah. Choose people over comfort. Choose selflessness. Now, if you look at that list and you're anything like me, you realize that right now what you need to do more than anything else is confess. If you're like me, you've fallen short. Not just this week, I fall short in these every week. Every week, in some way, I fall short on these. And so I'm gonna give you some time to confess where you've fallen short to the Lord. And so I'd ask you just close your eyes, bow your head right now. I don't want you to do this later today. I want us to do it right now together. With your eyes closed as you go before the Lord, I want you to ask yourself, when have I made Jonah's mistake? When have I done what Jonah did? When when have I chosen not to extend mercy to someone, chosen to be angry and, and hate them? When have I chosen to love that which is insignificant and doesn't last? When have I chosen uh, my comfort above the needs of other people? Just go before the Lord and, and confess those things to the Lord. Lay those sins at his feet and ask for his forgiveness. And now with your eyes still closed and your head still bowed, I'd ask you, think about two people. Two people in your life this week whom you can extend mercy to. Picture their faces right now. Two people whom you can either extend forgiveness if they've hurt you or or two people whom you can give undeserved kindness, some gift of grace that they don't deserve. Who are they? Think about that right now. Think about what, what exactly will you do for them this week to show them the grace of God. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you now. And we recognize and confess that we are sinners. Lord, we have fallen short of your standards. We don't love like you love. We tend to be angry. We tend to care more about ourselves and other people. We tend to give in to bitterness. Father, we are so sorry for that. Please forgive us. Thank you that you are a God of grace. Lord, we rejoice in that from the deepest chamber of our heart. We rejoice that you are a God of grace because you did not have to be. You chose to be a God of grace. And if that was not true about you, then the only thing any of us would have to look forward to in life is the fires of hell. Thank you that you chose to be a God of infinite grace. We pray for any person in this room who has not yet received your gift of grace through Jesus Christ. Any person who thinks they have to earn your love through good deeds. Any person who thinks they have to earn forgiveness by coming to church. I pray, Father, help them to realize Your love is a free gift. Forgiveness is a free gift. It is theirs for free if they will simply receive it in faith and believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. Please, Lord, bring them to that moment of receiving grace this morning. And for all of us who have received that grace, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves like you do. Help us to see ourselves as sinners in need of your grace every day. Help us to see other people like you do, to extend mercy to them, love to them. I pray, Father, that we would be a people of grace because we worship a God of grace. 
I pray that you would convict us and transform us, that your spirit would work upon us. Thank you that you are a God who has chosen in grace to love us through Christ. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Walk in grace this week.